Hello and welcome to episode 9 of Pay-Per-View where I review the papers and big headlines over the week and place events and headlines in their true context in a weekly podcast. Well, I've started the last couple of episodes talking about the Russian spy story, so I might as well start the same this week. This is in The Independent. Russian ambassador claims UK has stocks of Novichok nerve agent in extraordinary press conference. Britain had stores of the Novichok nerve agent before the poisoning of former spy Sergei Skripal, the Russian ambassador to London has claimed. Well, it's worth pointing out that there's a science park in Porton Down, just down the road from Salisbury, where there's a military research facility, and I've seen it suggested that this could be where the nerve gas actually came from. I'm not saying it did. I'm not saying Porton Down was behind the poisoning of Skripal, but it's worth considering. In an extraordinary and lengthy press conference, Alexander Yakovenko said the accounts around the events in Salisbury were so complicated it would take someone like fictional detective Hercule Poirot to solve the crime. Mr. Skripal and his daughter Yulia are in a critical condition after collapsing on a bench on the 4th of March. Britain accuses Russia of attempted murder, but Russia denies involvement and says Britain has no evidence. Exactly. The ambassador who wished the Skripals a speedy recovery said the Russians were unaware of the motivation of the British government and its classified investigation. This case is so complicated, we need, let's say, some wisdom of a person like Poirot to investigate, he said. Well, you're not going to find any wisdom from Theresa May or Boris Johnson, I can tell you that much. The article goes on. With what some might regard as considerable chutzpah, surely not lost on a 63-year-old, Mr. Yakovenko accused the UK of a bad record of violating international law and misleading the international community. Russia, he added, can't take British words for granted. Well, he's absolutely right, and the same goes for America. And this thing about Yakovenko has considerable chutzpah accusing the UK of a bad record of violating international law and misleading people. And it seems this is in reference to Russia being accused of everything and the fake news scandal said to involve Russia. So America talks about Russia hacking elections when they have electronic voting machines. Electronic voting machines? Anybody can hack them. And they talk about Russia hacking elections. It's extraordinary. The reason many people voted for Trump rather than Clinton was because Clinton is a very corrupt individual and deceitful individual and people believed wrongly but they believed Trump would be different to what has gone before. This is the same reason many people voted for Brexit. They were sick of the establishment telling them what to do, telling them how they should vote. They wanted at least some semblance of control back over their own lives and they knew by voting to leave the European Union they would achieve that. What I don't think many of them realised was that until 2019 at least, we will still be in the European Union. But that was what they voted for, to take back control of their own lives. They wanted to make their voice heard and their vote count for something for once. That's what got Trump elected, and also vast swathes of the alternative media in America supported Trump. The same alternative media who have spent years saying that it doesn't matter who you vote for, the same agenda continues either way, which is true. But for some reason they fell for Trump. There's nothing better than telling people what they want to hear because they're far more likely to believe you if you do that because they want to believe what you're saying. So that's what got Trump elected. It was nothing whatsoever to do with Russia. He continued, history shows that British statements must be verified. We demand full transparency of the investigation and full cooperation with Russia. He even hinted Britain may have produced a nerve agent used in the attack. How that was possible that the British authorities managed to designate the nerve agent used as so-called Novichok and its origin so quickly. He said, could it mean that it is highly likely that British authorities already had this nerve agent in their chemical laboratory in Porton Down? Exactly, how did they know what it was unless they had a sample to compare it with? Mr. Yakovenko, who appeared to enjoy himself in front of the cameras, responded with good humour to journalists' questions as he attempted to shift public opinion over the incident in Salisbury. 
The ambassador, who laughed repeatedly towards the end of the press conference, linked other Russian deaths on UK soil to British secret services, suggested the government had given residence to Russian serial killers, and said Britain was trying to find a new role in the world after Brexit by taking an anti-Russian stance. Well, I wonder how they're trying to find a new role in the world. They're trying to demonise Russia to justify a conflict with Russia, an action against Russia. On Wednesday, Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson compared the upcoming World Cup in Moscow to the 1936 Olympic Games under Adolf Hitler. Mr Yakovenko hit back, telling reporters it was an insult to the Russian people who defeated Nazism and lost more than 25 million people. Despite Moscow's claims of innocence, Lithuania's president offered a full support to Theresa May and the British government over its stance on the poisoning attack. At a European Union summit in Brussels, Dalia Gribuskate said she was considering expelling Russian diplomats from the country, a former Soviet state which shares a border with Russia's western Kaliningrad enclave. Ms May told EU leaders they must unite to counter the threat from Russia, and said the Salisbury incident was part of a pattern of Russian aggression against Europe and its near neighbours from the western Balkans to the Near East. Addressing the fallout over Cambridge Analytica, Mr Yakovenko insisted Russia had no links to the company at the centre of the Facebook data scandal. Asked why he was pictured alongside Alexander Nix, the suspended chief executive of the firm, he said, One day I was invited to the Windsor Polo Club, and the main prize was the Russian vodka, Ivan the Terrible. And the organisers asked me, why don't we give the prize to all the members of the team? I gave the prize to maybe 10 people, 12 people, and that was the only time that I met this gentleman. But the picture was good, I like it. Meanwhile, the British Council said in a statement it had cancelled all events and programmes in Russia after being told by its foreign ministry to cease activity. We deeply regret this and are grateful for your understanding, the statement said. The British Council, a state-funded body that promotes British culture overseas, has worked in Moscow continuously since 1959. Some very good points made there by Yakovenko. And again, the key thing it all comes down to in the end is show us the evidence, because that is what decisions should be based on in terms of what action is taken, if any, against Russia, if it's found that Russia is behind it. The next story now continues this theme of America and Britain's foreign policy. This is in The Independent. Trump replaces National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster with former UN Ambassador John Bolton in latest White House shakeup. Donald Trump is replacing National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster with a hawkish former ambassador to the United Nations, John Bolton, in the latest administration shakeup. In a sign of the administration's unusually high rate of turnover. The pro-Iraq war hardliner will become Mr. Trump's third national security advisor. General McMaster's leadership in the National Security Council staff has helped my administration accomplish great things to bolster America's national security. He helped develop our America first national security strategy, revitalize our alliances in the Middle East, smash ISIS, bring North Korea to the table and strengthen our nation's prosperity, Mr. Trump said in a statement. Well, I thought ISIS were still at large. I don't think it could be said anyone smashed ISIS. Revitalise our alliances in the Middle East and bring North Korea to the table. North Korea's been a country they've wanted to have a conflict with for a long time. The article goes on. The president said on Twitter that an official handover would occur in April. I am thankful to President Donald J. Trump for the opportunity to serve him and our nation as national security advisor. I am grateful for the friendship and support of the members of the National Security Council who work together to provide the President with the best options to protect and advance our national interests, Mr McMaster said in a statement. Mr Trump's initial pick for the role, General Michael Flynn, stepped aside after it emerged he had misled officials about conversations with the then Russian ambassador. 
Mr. Flynn subsequently pleaded guilty to lying to FBI agents who were investigating potential coordination between the Russian government and the Trump presidential campaign. In elevating Mr. Bolton, a staunch proponent of the Iraq war, the president has chosen an aide whose support for military entanglements abroad would seem to clash with Mr. Trump's America First instincts and campaign promises to emphasize domestic issues. The change also comes at a key moment for the Trump administration's foreign policy after the president committed to what would be an unprecedented meeting with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un to discuss denuclearization. In an interview with Fox News, Mr. Bolton called the appointment a great honor. I've never been shy about what my views are, but frankly what I have said is behind me, at least effective 9th of April, Mr. Bolton said. The important thing is what the president says and what advice I would give him. A hawkish figure who rose to prominence under George W. Bush and a vocal supporter of the American invasion of Iraq, Mr. Bolton served in the State Department during Mr. Bush's first term before becoming America's ambassador to the United Nations. Critics called the ambassador post an inappropriate choice given Mr. Bolton's history of assailing the international body and Democrats state to help force his resignation by blocking a confirmation vote. Mr. Bolton has also been a fierce critic of Iran and North Korea, two countries that Mr. Trump has forcefully criticised and that will likely continue to feature prominently in the Trump administration's global posture. In 2003, when he was serving as America's chief arms control diplomat, Mr. Bolton delivered a speech in Seoul, South Korea, denouncing then-North Korean leader Kim Jong-il as a tyrannical dictator whose country resembled a hellish nightmare. The president is no stranger to using vivid language to denounce North Korea, threatening the regime of Kim Jong-un with military forces the country menaced neighbours and tested multiple intercontinental ballistic missiles in recent months. But Mr Trump has also embraced a diplomatic opening with his extraordinary agreement to meet with Mr Kim. His openness to negotiating an end to North Korea's nuclear program contrasts with Mr Bolton's repeated recent declarations that diplomatic approaches to North Korea cannot succeed. They don't want a diplomatic approach. You see, this is the switch in perception we need if we're going to understand the situation. They don't want an agreement because if they have an agreement, they can't sell a conflict. This is where the mainstream media misses the point entirely. They think when world leaders are talking, they're trying to work out what's best. They're not. The world leaders are following an agenda. This is why the same list of countries continues being ticked off no matter who's in power. The media also thinks that when countries or leaders are conflicting, that it happens randomly in response to whatever reason they give for the conflict at the time, when actually it's just an excuse to start a conflict with that country. And the media thinks that when leaders are talking, they're trying to work out the best solution and the best way to move forward in the moment when they're just following an agenda that's been decided a long time before. The article goes on. In late February, shortly before the White House announced Mr. Trump had accepted Mr. Kim's offer to meet, Mr. Bolton also shares Mr. Trump's suspicion of Iran, a country the president has singled out as a threat to the United States. Mr. Trump has frequently excoriated a deal forged during the Obama administration to halt Iran's nuclear program, warning Mr. Obama's approach towards Iran has brought a bad situation to the brink of catastrophe. Mr. Bolton in 2015 authored an op-ed advocating a military strike on Iran's nuclear facilities. The inescapable conclusion is that Iran will not negotiate away its nuclear program, nor will sanctions block its building a broad and deep weapons infrastructure, Mr. Bolton wrote, saying that only military action can accomplish what is required. We keep hearing about Iran, dangerous Iran. When you look at a list of countries Iran has invaded in the last hundred years, there's no countries there. But when you look at a list of countries America and Britain has invaded, how long have you got? Also, America talks about Iran being a nuclear power, but they won't mention the fact that they send weaponry over to Israel one of the best armed militaries in the world, and they won't mention the fact that Israel hasn't signed the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. 
which is an international treaty to prevent the spread of nuclear weapons and weapons technology, because Israel controls America as it does Britain because of Zionism, or revisionist Zionism, which I've talked about before on pay-per-view. Israel also has a partnership with Saudi Arabia, which America and Britain also support and sell arms to. Britain and America support Israel with its genocide of Palestinians and its apartheid regime, and Saudi Arabia with its tyrannical and violent regime. They'll do things they condemn others for, when it suits them, while using what they themselves do as an excuse, or lie, to demonise others in seek of their own geopolitical ends. This is the true face of America and Britain. The article goes on. That background prompted an outcry from Democrats in response to Mr. Trump's selection of Mr. Bolton. Republican Brendan Boyle of Pennsylvania called him a dangerous radical with a record of undermining key alliances around the world, and several lawmakers said he had been discredited by his support for the Iraq war. Bolton played a key role in politicizing the intel that misled us into the Iraq war. We cannot let this extreme war hawk blunder us into another terrible conflict, Senator Edward Markey in Massachusetts, Democrat, said on Twitter. Well, John Bolton was a member of an organization who they drew up in a document published in September 2000, though the plan goes back much, much further. The organization was called the Project for the New American Century, and the document was called Rebuilding America's Defenses, Strategy, Forces and Resources for a New Century. And in that document, among other things, they listed a series of countries they wanted a conflict with. Although obviously they phrased it in their own way. That's basically what they were saying. And these countries included Iraq, Iran, North Korea, Syria, Libya, Lebanon, and China. Sound familiar? September 2000. Look what's happened since. It also said in this document that the agenda laid out in the document would be Quote, likely to be a long one, absent some catastrophic and catalyzing event like a new Pearl Harbor. In other words, this agenda might take ages to happen, so we need something to speed it along. One year after the document was published, America had what Bush described at the time as the Pearl Harbor of the 21st century, 9-11. There was a Bush speechwriter called David Froome from an organization called the American Enterprise Institute. And in 2002, he wrote Bush's State of the Union speech, which claimed that there was an axis of evil that had to be targeted. The axis of evil, Iraq, Iran, North Korea, straight off the pages of the Project for the New American Century document. There was another document prepared in 1996 by a study group led by Richard Pearl, for Benjamin Netanyahu, who was then Prime Minister of Israel as he is now. Richard Pearl was a member of the Project for the New American Century, and the document was called A Clean Break, A New Strategy for Securing the Realm. Among what was in that document, it called for the removal of Saddam Hussein in Iraq. This is 1996. This document was prepared. 9-11 was an example of the most used mass mind and emotional manipulation technique. They use on the people all the time to advance their agenda. It used to be called the Hegelian dialectic, but it's become known as problem-reaction-solution. Stage one, create a problem. It could be a terrorist event, it could be a war, it could be a currency collapse, it could be food shortages, it could be any problem that's relevant to the solution you want to install in society. Stage two, you get the reaction from the people via the 
mainstream media talking about the problem, highlighting the problem, a pathetic, unquestioning mainstream media who just take official versions and repeat it because it must be true because it's come from an official source. If we had a mainstream media as it should be, problem reaction solution would fall apart because they would investigate it properly, they would find cover story and they'd report that to the people. They would report the truth of the situation to the people because we don't have a media as it should be. They just take the official story and repeat it. So you've told the people the problem. You've, you've given them a fake someone or something that was allegedly behind it or some people. You've got the reaction of fear, of outrage, of do something. What are they going to do about it? Giving them the power instead of people taking back power over their own lives. And then they who have covertly created the problem or those that work for those who've covertly created the problem they openly offer the solutions to the problems they have themselves created or those that they work for have created which are changes in society to advance the elite's agenda in whatever way relevant to the problem and 9-11 was the most classic example of this technique if there's ever a picture dictionary because of course you can get picture dictionaries now if there's ever a picture dictionary that includes problem, reaction, solution, and I'm not ever expecting there to be, but if there ever is, the picture would be of the Twin Towers because it's the most classic textbook example of that technique. They wanted to invade Afghanistan. They wanted to kick off this war on terror. They wanted to justify invading countries in the Middle East. They wanted to justify changes in society in terms of law and legislation what people have to do and can't do because of terrorism, surveillance, tracking to deal with terrorists, allegedly to deal with terrorists, etc. The introduction of the 1984 state. And, and as far as John Bolton, when we're told, as it said in the article, Bolton backs this or Bolton backs that in terms of foreign policy, he's just calling for the agenda, his former organisation laid out in that document which goes back in truth a lot longer than that document. A point to make about the foreign policy of the Bush administration is that it wasn't Bush behind it. It was driven by people around him in his administration and in the project for the new American century who were driving it. I'm not saying Bush comes out of it all pearly white. George W. Bush is a deeply sinister character and he will have had no problem with America's indiscretions abroad during his administration. I'm saying it wasn't driven by Bush. It was driven by those around him. Bush was just a front man. Bush was in place to sign into law the agenda and also because they knew that he wouldn't oppose the foreign policy agenda kicked off during his reign. Bush is clearly not intelligent. People say you've got to be intelligent to be a president. Well, does anyone think Trump is intelligent? It did help Bush that his father was a former president and former head of the CIA. Those things might have gone in his favour and also there was the election controversy in Florida. Those things might have helped his cause. Someone said to me once, Bush was elected because he gave the best speeches. Bush gave good speeches. Somebody said that to me once. I pinched myself to check I wasn't dreaming. But amazingly, I was awake. They really did say that. It was nothing to do with his speeches or his campaign, except on one level in terms of the campaign. People would have bizarrely fallen for his rhetoric and his campaign and thought he was a good choice to vote for, for whatever reason. But he was put in place because it was the right time from the elite and the agenda's point of view for him to be there. Bush was followed by Obama who was picked up by a massive insider called Zbigniew Brzezinski in the 80s. 
In a book in 1997, Brzezinski talked about the need to control Eurasia, Europe, Asia, and the Middle East for American preeminence. In the Project for the New American Century document, it talks about reshaping the international security order in line with America's principles and interests. Well, first of all, America has no principles. And it's not about America's interests, it's about the global elite's interests through America. And we had a presidential problem reaction solution with Obama, supposedly a man of peace, who during his last term dropped three bombs an hour. And during his entire reign, there was no point when America was not in conflict with somebody. Now people say, yeah, but look at the mess he inherited. Give him a break. And that was the idea. That was the mind game. Obama was the solution to Bush's problem in the public mind. That's how they sold it. And Obama was worse than Bush because Obama, with his smile and his apparently friendly nature, apparently only, could sell things that Bush never could like further military intervention abroad and further militarization of the police force, the law enforcement, which both of which happened during his reign. And now we've got Trump, who is following the same agenda of ticking off the list of countries, and now he's got John Bolton as national security advisor. No nation is secure with the advice of John Bolton, but it's not about security, it's about following an agenda. One of the big stories this week has been the March for Our Lives protest and there's some points I want to make about that and points that me making about that that I don't see too many people making. Thousands joined March for Our Lives anti-gun protests around the world. Hundreds of thousands of students have joined anti-gun March for Our Lives rallies across the US in one of the largest expressions of popular opposition in the modern era. Events have been taking place at more than 800 locations around the world including London, Sydney, Tokyo, Mumbai plus hundreds of places in the US. In Washington, as the number of young, diverse and impassioned protesters swelled along Pennsylvania Avenue, many carried signs reading, We are the change, no more silence, and keep NRA money out of politics. Organizers said they hoped the protest would be one of the biggest in the capital since the Vietnam era, along with survivors from the attack in Parkland, Florida, who had been the driving force in a new push for gun reform. Speakers included young victims of gun violence from around America. They sang, they chanted, and they challenged their parents' generation to be effective in eliminating gun violence from society. Edna Chavez, 17, from Manual Arts High School in Los Angeles, took the stage with a raised fist and spoke powerfully about her brother, who was killed by gun violence. I have learned to duck from bullets before I learned to reach. She led the crowd to chant his name, Ricardo, Ricardo. Travon Bosley, a high school student from Chicago whose brother was killed, said, I'm here to speak for those youth who fear they may be shot while going to the gas station, the movies, the bus stop, the church, or even to and from school. I'm here to speak for those Chicago youth who feel their voices have been silenced for far too long. Yolanda Renee King, granddaughter of Martin Luther King, told the crowd, I have a dream that enough is enough and that there should be a gun-free world, period. She then asked the crowd to repeat, encouraging the crowd to repeat her so the whole world can hear. Later, Parkland shooting survivor Emma Gonzalez took the stage for 6 minutes and 20 seconds, much of that in silence. The amount of time she said it took the school shooter to kill 17 people in Florida last month. As the students gathered, Donald Trump was whisked by motorcade to his West Palm Beach golf club. Trump later tweeted support for the victims of the horrible attack in France yesterday, but did not mention the rallies on Twitter. A White House statement read, We applaud the many courageous young Americans exercising their First Amendment rights today. Keeping our children safe is the top priority of the president, which is why he urged Congress to pass the fixed NICS and Stop School Violence Acts and sign them into law. The administration also drew attention to some minor reforms the president has called for, including a move by the Justice Department on Friday to ban bump stocks, the accessory that allows rifles to mimic the rapid fire of automatic weapons. 
The NRA also stayed silent on the student gatherings, but outside the FBI headquarters in Washington, about 30 gun rights supporters staged a counter-demonstration in front of the FBI headquarters, standing quietly with signs such as armed victims live longer and stop violating civil rights. Veteran civil rights leader John Lewis said the protests reminded him of the early days of the civil rights era. I think it's amazing, Lewis said. They will be the leaders of the 21st century. In one of the first speeches, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas Sr., Delaney Tarr told the crowd of the students' demands, including background checks and a ban on assault weapons. When you give us an inch, that bump stops ban, we will take a march, she said. We are not here for breadcrumbs, we are here to lead. Earlier, the Guardian spoke to Cassie Pierce, 17, who had ridden in her school bus for 10 hours from Manchester, Vermont, with dozens of her classmates. Clutching a sign that read, I should be writing my college essay, not my will, Pierce said, I'm here because enough is enough. We have a right to be here and we don't want to be killed in school. In a meeting with lawmakers in the aftermath of Parkland, the president has signaled support for stronger background checks on gun purchase and raising the minimum age for buying high-powered rifles. But the NRA staunchly opposed these measures and Trump appears to have abandoned the proposals. A group of student journalists from the Stoneman Douglas newspaper, The Eagle Eye, were invited to guest edit The Guardian's US website this weekend. Eleven students covered the rally in Washington, interviewing other survivors of gun violence from Stoneman Douglas and elsewhere. Parkland student John Kayami 15 said, I think that legislatures should be aware that the next generation of voters is right in front of them, so if they don't want to promote change, then we will vote for change. The scenes of thousands of students on the streets was overwhelming to many of the victims of gun violence who attended the Washington rally. I did not expect this. I'm still astounded, said Mark Barden, whose seven-year-old son Daniel was one of the 20 children murdered at Sandy Hook in 2012. Well, there's a lot of questions to be asked about Sandy Hook. I'll say that much for now. To me, it looks like our entire nation is finally on board, on the right side of this issue. It's so inspiring and encouraging and overwhelming and beautiful to me. Biden spent five years pushing for stricter gun control laws, first with the support of Barack Obama's White House, then continuing when gun control again dropped off the national agenda. While the day was focused on the youth, Sir Paul McCartney stood in solidarity with marchers in New York Central Park and referred to John Lennon's fatal shooting outside his apartment building in 1980. One of my best friends was killed by gun violence right around here, so it's important to me not just to march today, but to take action tomorrow to have these people to have their voices heard, he told CNN. While classmates are rallying in Washington, thousands more Stoneman Douglas survivors, their families and supporters are among tens of thousands gathering in Parkland, Florida, at the scene of last month's shooting. More than 20,000 attended to listen to the speeches from the amphitheater at Pine Charles Park before walking the miles south to Stoneman Douglas High School. Parkland is a family, and when our family is hurting, we all come together, said Liam Kiernan, a 15-year-old Parkland 10th grader. We become stronger because we feel we're all one person. Matt Schachter, the father of Alex, a 14-year Stoneman Douglas marching band musician, broke down in tears as he recalled I'm a son who playing basketball with his older brother and teaching his little sister to become a better trombone player. Chapter said that on 13th of February he was like any other parent wanting his children to be happy and get good grades then a Valentine's Day shooting happened. Since the day that changed my life I will not stop fighting for change he said. Well I agree that it would be great if there was no more gun violence and I understand why the students are calling for it but they don't understand that there's an agenda behind this. That's why it's got support from Washington. That's why it's got support from political figures. When protesters and people are calling for things that are against what the elite's global agenda wants, then there's riot police, there's law enforcement there to break up the protests, and obviously a lot of times they end up clashing with the protesters and the political figures either condemn the protest or don't say anything at all. And then when students are protesting for that which is on the agenda, they get all the support of political figures they get to guess that at the Guardian, the protest is covered on Twitter. Yeah, because they're calling for what the agenda wants, but they don't know it. That's why they get the support. They don't realise, as I've said before on pay-per-view, 
that the agenda wants an end to guns, except for law enforcement. And at this very time of the law enforcement in America becoming more and more the military in all but name, you've got increasing army law enforcement in Britain, but talking about America, just as the military and law enforcement are fusing into one in America, there's cause to remove guns from the population. Obviously, an unarmed population will submit and surrender an armed-to-the-teeth law enforcement than an armed population will. I don't like guns. I wish guns never existed. But we have to understand that the debate is not so much guns or no guns. It's why would the establishment want to get rid of guns at the very time that law enforcement is fusing into the military more and more? That's the question. It's about control. Not gun control. Control of people. And these students are being used as pawns in a game they don't understand. They're being given all the promotion. They're obviously genuine, but they're being used to advance this agenda, which the establishment wants. They're calling for something that the establishment is very happy to give to them. That's what they're doing. Also, you've got celebrities supporting the cause and tweeting about it as well. Whenever do you see celebrities tweeting their support for a protest against anything the elite or establishment want? It might happen now and then, but as a whole, it rarely if ever happens. These celebrities are genuine, but they're calling for the building of their own and their family's prisons. Yes, I wish there were no guns. Yes, I wish there were no gun crime. And yes, the tragic events that have happened because of shootings are terrible and unimaginable for the family and loved ones of those left behind, especially parents and friends of kids. Yes, but it's about being streetwise and not letting emotion cloud our judgment. There is an agenda to take guns away because an unarmed population will obviously submit far more than an armed population. It's all part of building this Hunger Games society. See episode 4 if you don't know what I mean by that. And also, do we really believe that events that are orchestrated by the intelligence arena, which is not necessarily saying that all of them are, but some of them are, do we really believe such events will not happen because there's gun laws? Some of these events are carried out by mind-controlled assassins. I've explained mind control before in the pilot episode. I've been watching a lot of Darren Brown lately, just purely for entertainment. The guy's a master of what he does. Highly skilled and very knowledgeable. It amazes me, his level of mastery. And I think I'm actually more amazed when he tells you or shows you how he does it. Seeing the level of detail knowledge required is incredible. In another life, if he wasn't Darren Brown as we know now, Darren Brown could have been working for the intelligence agencies, mind controlling people. No problem. It's better that he's in entertainment, obviously. But he could have been a mind control programmer easily. And I keep seeing and hearing him talking about aspects of mind control that I've come across myself over the years. Mind control was actually one of the very first subjects I came across about 10 years ago now when I started to realise the world was very different from the world I'd grown up believing in. Now, the reason I bring this up is because Darren Brown actually had an episode called The Assassin where he's actually showing you on television that it's possible to mind control someone to perform an assassination and how he did it. Now, of course, when you say that, people think of a human version of the Terminator, but it's a lot more sophisticated than that. And if it's possible for Dan Brown to do it for a TV show, do we really not think it's possible for the intelligence agencies to do it? I watched an episode last night where he implanted a trigger into someone, which is what they do in mind control. The person sees or hears a trigger and then they act in a certain way, either carry out an act or change personality, whatever is programmed into their mind relevant to the trigger. And the person was manipulated after seeing a, a girl wearing a red coat with a red balloon. 
the person could be totally normal, just another person. And then after you give the trigger, they can switch straight away. Different personality or they'll carry out a certain act. And the person in this clip I saw from Darren Brown was manipulated to steal a television from a technology store. And that was done within minutes. So what can be done within a much longer time scale and with state-of-the-art equipment? Now, I'm not saying what happened in Parkland, Florida was as a result of mind control. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is we need to keep an open mind to the possibility rather than just dismissing it like most people would when it can clearly be done. And if it can't be done, then how does Darren Brown know about it? I'm not saying he knows that the intelligence agencies are mind controlling people. What I'm saying is he knows how to do it. So how would he if it can't be done? Why do I keep seeing aspects of my research into mind control over the years cropping up over and over again when I watch Darren Brown? Some of the information I've looked at over the years has come from people who've researched it, talking and writing about it long before Darren Brown came on the scene. I've got a book at home written by a lady called Kathy O'Brien and she was taken into a government military mind control project called MK Ultra, and specifically its offshoot called Project Monarch. It's worth looking into MK Ultra if you want to learn more about mind control. I won't go into it now because I've already talked about it in the pilot episode, but Kathy O'Brien has a book called Transformation of America, which actually began as a testimony for the U.S. Congressional Permanent Select Committees on Intelligence Oversight. Not a book originally. And there's photos of copies of official documentation in the book. Kathy had a husband called Mark Phillips, and they worked on what later became the book together. And Mark Phillips who passed away last year, was an intelligence insider and was recognised internationally by mental health and law enforcement professionals as an authority on the science concerning external control of the mind. In other words, mind control. Kathy talks about how certain figures in government, like the older George Bush, were involved in abusing her and her daughter Kelly in horrific ways, and she names Bush as a paedophile, which I've come across from another researcher who actually knows Kathy and has met her and her daughter in America. Again, this doesn't explain every mass shooting, but it definitely explains some of them. James Holmes, just as one example, shooting at the movie theatre during the Batman premiere of The Dark Knight Returns, was a classic case of a mind-controlled assassin. Holmes was actually studying neuroscience, in other words, science of the brain and how it works, and the nervous system, which is very appropriate, obviously, for mind control. To summarise what I'm saying, students marching to stop gun control is not going to stop these tragic events happening. Criminals will find ways around it anyway, and they are criminals, so they don't follow the law in the first place. And the intelligence agencies don't have to follow the law. But what this march will do, if anything, is bring in another layer of the Hunger Games society, an arm to the teeth military, which is what we've got in America now. And in this country, police are going around more and more weaponry. You've got that against a defenceless population. That's the idea of gun control. That's why they want it. And people will say, well, what's your solution then? Well, I wouldn't even begin to know how to stop people shooting people. I mean, I wouldn't begin to know that. But one thing that would help, looking beyond the level of what's on the news and in the media in general, to explain events and started doing their own research into it and sharing that information, as long as they know it's credible and can be supported by facts and evidence and information, to let people know the truth of these events, because those events that are manipulated and coordinated into place are not done for no reason. They're done towards a particular end. So if they know people are becoming increasingly aware of the truth of these events, and they are, 
But if it happened on a mass scale, they would have no reason to orchestrate these events anymore because there would be no point anymore in them. Terrorist events, which again are not necessarily all orchestrated, but some of them are. 9-11 absolutely was. I can say that after researching 9-11. I've looked at so much information about 9-11. Credible information. They're not done for no reason. They're done towards a particular end. And if they know people are not going to accept the solutions to the problems they've created, problem, reaction, solution, then they're not going to spend time and money. Not that money's a problem for them, really. But they're not going to spend time and money when they know they're not going to get what they want at the end of it. So there's one solution. But this march can only achieve one thing, and that's another layer of the 1984 and Hunger Games society. This is in the Daily Mail. One of the other big stories this week has been the extent of Facebook's data gathering and its selling on of users' data. Facebook's data gold rush. Web giant's taking soared by 12 billion pounds after it let companies hoover up users' data. Facebook revenue soared to billions of pounds after it started giving away users' details. The social media giant practically doubled its takings every year after opening up profiles to tens of thousands of app developers. Facebook users were yesterday waking up to how much private information has been handed out. During the data gold rush which lasted from 2009 to 2015, it appears almost anyone who described themselves as a developer could freely mine Facebook's database. In this period, the technologist firm revenues rose sharply from £500 million in 2009 to nearly £13 billion by 2015. The company is now facing probes from law enforcement agencies around the world, including Britain. Some £39 billion has been wiped from the social network's value this week, although it rallied slightly yesterday, and shareholders have begun legal action accusing the firm of making misleading statements about its policies. Whatever the consequences, Facebook will absorb it. No problem for Facebook. Just like all these other giant corporations that are serving the elite's agenda. Last night, Facebook's billionaire founder Mark Zuckerberg finally broke his silence, admitting his site made mistakes. In a post on the social network, he added, at the end of the day, I'm responsible for what happens on our platform. In terms of he was ultimately responsible. I don't believe that for a second. No way is Zuckerberg running Facebook. Some guy in a dorm room in a university. All these inventions always seem to come from behind garage doors or in dorm rooms. I mean, what are the chances of that? Do they not think they might have overplayed that one? They're cover stories. That's why it's always the same. I mean, do we really think this elite are sitting around just waiting and hoping that the technology they need to abash their agenda and for their agenda will come along? And if it doesn't, then they're screwed. And it always appears as if by magic, just when they need it. Oh, that's lucky. Some guy in a dorm room has invented just what we need. Isn't it funny how that keeps happening? Do we think that's the situation? It comes through deep levels of the intelligence arena where you need the top level security clearance to access. And then cover stores are concocted and covered people promoted to sell the technology to the people as a brand new invention by this so-called whiz kid. Maybe sometimes they are, but it doesn't matter anyway. People say, why can't people just invent this technology like we're told they did? Maybe they are capable of that sometimes, but they don't need to invent it because it already exists. Long before these whiz kids, or so-called anyway at least, appear in the public arena. But some kid who got lucky and invented social media in a dorm room, allegedly. I don't believe Zuckerberg was responsible for social media. And I don't buy Zuckerberg's official backstory for a second. But some kid who got lucky and allegedly invented social media in a dorm room 
is running a giant multinational corporation like Facebook when Facebook has fundamental connections to the intelligence arena? No way. One employee of Facebook, Regina Duggan, is a former employee of DARPA, the technological development arm of the Pentagon, and she's there to push forward Facebook's role in the transhumanism agenda. She's already been to Google. Zuckerberg's nothing more than a front person to stop people looking behind him to who's really calling the shots. The article goes on. Last night, it was reported that advertisers threatened to end their relationship with Facebook. A group of leading British consumer goods companies has demanded answers from the social media giant, according to the Times. It was claimed that around 3,000 firms, including Unilever and Procter & Gamble, did not want to associate with Facebook if it was shown that users' data had been acquired without permission. Banking giant Nordea said it had put some Facebook investments in quarantine as it monitored the scandal. The scale of the breach has grown dramatically since it emerged at the weekend that 50 million Facebook profiles were harvested by Alexander Kogan, a psychology researcher at Cambridge University, who designed a personality quiz app as a research project. That's a point as well, because some of these quizzes and fun question and answer apps on Facebook. Does anyone think Facebook doesn't gather that data as well? I mean, that's one of the reasons Facebook exists in the first place. There's already a questions section on Facebook where users answer questions about themselves. And it's so obvious what's happening there. Where do people think that information's going? Facebook don't just add sections like that to the website for no reason. Not ultimately. The article goes on. Kogan, who designed this personality quiz app, Passed the data to the Cambridge Analytica, whose boss Alexander Nix was suspended on Tuesday after Channel 4 broadcast footage of him bragging about the firm's role in Donald Trump's presidential campaign. The company says Mr. Nix's comments do not represent the values or operations of the firm. Dr. Kogan claimed tens of thousands of other apps may be mining social media for personal data to be sold on in the same way. Other experts said it was possible virtually the entire Facebook database from 2015 could be in unknown hands. I would say possibly before 2015 as well, almost certainly. Dr. Kogan claimed tens of thousands of other rats may be mining social media for personal data to be sold on in the same way. Until it tightened privacy settings in April that year, Facebook was effectively giving away masses of personal data to third-party developers for free to encourage them to create more apps and grow the platform, say experts. In 2012, there were some 9 million Facebook apps, all of whose developers were apparently able to access users' personal details. It is unclear what checks were made on someone applying to Facebook to become a developer. For example, whether they might be a company, a spy agency, or even a mafia gang before personal details were made available. Dutch academic Bernhard Ryder, who created a similar Facebook app in 2009 before deleting it, said before 2015 you could get troves of data. I should have stored all the data and then sold it to get that Lamborghini. Social media users have also raised fears about how others, including Amazon Music Service, Spotify, and dating app Tinder, could be using their data. UK Information Commissioner Elizabeth Denham said she was examining whether Facebook could have broken laws under the Data Protection Act. Whistleblower Sandy Parakilas, a data protection manager for Facebook in 2011 and 2012, told the Commons Digital Committee yesterday the firm had adopted a Wild West approach to guarding data. As the backlash grew, Brian Acton, the co-founder of messaging service WhatsApp, suggested it was time for users to delete Facebook. Meanwhile, a poll by Sky News and more than a thousand people found 65% said they trusted Facebook less than they did a week ago. Expert Frederick Kaltschuner from campaign group Privacy International said this is really just the tip of the iceberg, adding that 10 years worth of someone's personal details could have been spirited away before the privacy rules were tightened. 
Last night, Cambridge Analytica faced fresh questions after The Guardian reported the firm had been offered material from Israeli hackers who had accessed emails and politicians who are now heads of state in Nigeria and St. Kitts. SCL Group, Cambridge Analytica's parent company, denied taking possession of stolen information for any purpose in either campaign. Facebook executives have insisted they never sell or give away users' data. Simon Milner, the site's UK policy director, has told MPs that Cambridge Analytica may have lots of data, but it will not be Facebook user data. Well, beyond no illusion, Facebook will still be giving away data even after all this. It will just try to do it more secretly from now on. On one level, Facebook has been exposed for giving away information to third parties for advertising and to influence elections. But let nobody be under the illusion that information has not also been gleaned via Facebook for the intelligence agencies. That's the real reason for Facebook's existence. I remember seeing a meme on the internet once about Facebook, but also Twitter by implication, which had a picture of the Facebook logo and underneath it said the CIA. And then underneath that it said, they realized they didn't need to spy on you. Given the means, you were going to tell them everything yourself. Facebook is also about what the internet was always about, which is drawing people in via the claim that it's just about social media. And then when you've got a monopoly, showing your true colors. And we're starting to see that more now with Facebook. Change the subject now. Litter. This is in the Daily Mail. Make litter picking compulsory for primary school pupils who can then pass the skills on to their parents. Every primary school pupil should be made to pick up litter as part of the national curriculum, a former Tory minister said yesterday. Lord Robothan, a defence minister under David Cameron, said that if children in year six help tidy the roads, then general attitudes to littering would improve because they could teach their parents. He said if it were enacted that all children spent a couple of hours clearing the litter, it might have a gradual effect on attitudes and a positive educational impact. The peer, who was an MP for 23 years, lobbied ministers in the House of Lords to force primary school children to spend one afternoon every week picking up litter. He insisted it was necessary to do something specific and said children could then pass the skills on to their parents. He added that he raised the idea with Michael Gove, then Education Secretary, who told him it was an interesting idea. Last week, Environment Minister Theresa Coffey welcomed the plans, saying litter collecting could be included in citizenship lessons but not part of the curriculum itself. In the Lords yesterday, Education Minister Lord Agnew of Oldham said he agreed about the scourge of litter on Britain's streets and that the government was already trying to improve awareness in schools. But Labour's Lord Winston said it would be better to focus on the high rates of illiteracy and low rates of numeracy in some primary schools. That's a good point, actually, because what we're seeing, especially with the rise of social media and people using technology to communicate is a lack of proper spelling and a lack of even knowing how to use grammar and structure sentences and punctuation. And of course, the kids of today are the adults of tomorrow. So are we going to have a whole generation where they don't know how to write? You see it on social media all the time. Adults as well, but also kids. So focusing on that would be a good idea. But as far as this story goes, this is more preparing children to be slaves for the rest of their lives. I talked in episode 5 about how childhood is being stolen from children more and more, and it's all preparation for the world the elite want to introduce. I'm not saying Lord Robothan knows this, but this is a recurring theme. Children are being discouraged from doing this or that outdoors, which they did without a second thought in previous generations, like climbing trees and other things that they're discouraged from doing. There was an article actually about that in episode 5. 
And so children are being encouraged to stay indoors with technology and getting them addicted from an ever younger age, which of course plays into the transhumanism agenda. And I've talked before about how technology is having an impact on the brains of young people. When I was a kid, I was out nearly every day. There were kids then who only stayed inside, but there were also kids who played outside and were in the streets at that time. Parents don't let their kids do that nowadays as much as they did anyway, which is understandable given crime highlighted in the media and terrorism, some of which has been orchestrated to create exactly that sense of fear. So people look to the state to protect them, thus allowing increases of Orwell's 1984. But parents don't let their kids do things previous generations did, and also kids are being told by authority they can't do certain things, and now we've got this suggestion by this Lord Robotham that kids should be made to pick litter as part of the national curriculum. It's amazing to me to see how much things have changed in such a short space of time. When I was younger, kids were allowed to just be kids. Talking of being kids, this next story is relevant to that, but it's actually a positive story for once. This next story is in the independent. More than a third of parents do not think homework is helpful for primary school children, report finds. Homework is a huge cause of stress for many families, so with children with special educational needs or disabilities, it could be detrimental to their health, feedback to Ofsted says. The majority of parents said they believe prep at school, allowing pupils time to plan and get ready for lessons through research, will be a better alternative to homework. Ofsted's annual report on parents' views has been published just days after a study revealed that parents in the UK give their children less help with their education than those in most other countries. It causes more unhappiness and arguing in my house than anything else, one parent said. The survey of more than 300 parents also revealed that children with SEND, special educational needs and disabilities, can find the stress homework causes overwhelming and damaging to their health and self-esteem. In total, more than a third of parents, 36%, said homework was not helpful at all to their children in primary school, while 12% said it was not helpful in secondary school. In September 2016, Philip Morant's school and college secondary school in Essex announced it was going to ban all homework in a bid to allow teachers more time to plan lessons. The annual report published today also reveals that the majority of parents believe that Ofsted should inspect the level of private tutoring in schools to give a more accurate picture. Parents felt that high levels of private tutoring could reveal weaknesses in the education provided by schools. Typically their view was that private tutoring could inflate exam results and by monitoring it inspectors would get a more accurate reflection on the school in the report says. However, parents who said that the level of private tutoring should not be considered during an Ofsted inspection considered the choice to be a private family matter, which can occur for a number of reasons, including coaching for the 11 plus centuries in Sanford Grammar School. Many parents also expressed concerns about practicalities around collecting the information. Well, homework is another means of taking away from childhood, like the story I've just read. It's not enough for kids to go to school and be told by an authority figure what they can and can't do, when they have to be there, when they can talk, when they can go to the toilet, what's true, what's not true, what's possible, what's not possible, what's right and wrong, etc. And doing work in school, they also have to do homework. It's about continuing the programme and even when they're not in school. That's what homework is. I've talked about education before on pay-per-view in more detail in episode 5, but basically education is programming. It's about teaching children what are, in some cases, alleged facts and getting young people to see themselves in the world in a way that suits the system the establishment, authority and the elite, as our perceptions dictate our actions. If you can implant a sense of perception, then you've got the actions of that person. Education is the base program in which people take throughout their lives, while the real knowledge is suppressed by the mainstream media ultimately. Not every journalist knows this knowledge, goodness me if only. 
But it's not that the journalists know and are intentionally suppressing it, or that they have an editor or a boss standing over them watching them write articles, telling them what they can and can't write, or say if they're a reporter. All you, all you have to do is download the base programming, and that will be their starting point from which to judge everyone and everything. And the point is, through the media and education, the real knowledge is suppressed, apart from exceptions here and there, certainly only a few in comparison. While anything it promotes or doesn't challenge the official version of everything gets guaranteed column inches and airtime 24-7 and is taught to generation after generation in the education system. It's all about pro-line perception because from that everything else comes. We're going to move on now from suggestions about what kids should do to suggestions about what mostly adults should do with this story also in The Independent. Police ask public to become counter-terrorism citizens to help stop attacks. The new head of UK counter-terror policing has called on members of the public to become counter-terrorism citizens by passing on information that could help thwart attacks. Speaking almost a year after the Westminster attack, Metropolitan Police Assistant Commissioner Neil Basu said more than a fifth of 31,000 reports received last year resulted in useful intelligence. People are nervous about police overreacting or about wasting our time, but it's never a waste of our time. They think the security machine and counter-terrorism policing is where it all happens, but the statistics prove that in this country public support is vital and is working. People are being asked to look out for suspicious behaviour, including possessing weapons, chemicals, fertilisers or gas cylinders for no obvious reason, carrying out surveillance, having unusual items delivered, expressing extremist ideas or searching for terrorist material online. As far as expressing extremist ideas, this is designed to include anything that challenges the official narrative and official version of mainstream everything in the end. Any credible information, because they don't care about fake news, that's being used as, as an excuse to try to get the genuine, alternative and credible sources of information by tarring them with the same brush as the fake news and clickbait rubbish. But any credible information challenging and exposing the system, they want to target using the excuse of fake news. The article goes on. Critics argued that the call for public help was paving the way to the worst kinds of profiling, vigilantism and paranoia amid ongoing controversy around the government's counter-extremism program. Mr. Basu said all reports were assessed by specialist officers who decide what is valuable and are not going to overreact to a single piece of intelligence. Wait for this statement. The point is you don't have to make that judgement. You just have to feel nervous. And if you feel nervous, you shouldn't sit on it, you should report it. This is what it's all about, as I said earlier. Get people in fear and then they'll look to the state to protect them from what they've been manipulated to fear. And this is actually saying to people, you don't need evidence, just report someone or something if it feels suspicious or seems suspicious. This is 1984 again, getting people to snitch on each other, which happened in 1984, and driving people apart as well is another goal of this. They're doing this with sexual harassment claims, using genuine sexual harassment to drive men and women apart in case they get labelled as harassing another man or woman. And this is another attempt to drive people apart. If you're an elite with designs on global control, you have to divide and rule the population because you can't dictate in a state of harmony. You have to create division. The quote goes on. Some people say, isn't that but obvious or it's normal behavior? And that's absolutely true, but you've got to take that at people's judgment. I think people have good instincts about what feels odd in their workplace, in their community, and even in their family. The article goes on. Of almost 31,000 public reports to British counter-terror police in 2017, more than 6,600, 21% resulted in information used in live investigations or intelligence building. Research suggests that while more than 80% of people are motivated to report suspicious activity or behaviour, many are unclear exactly what they should be looking for. Mr Basu said the five terror attacks that struck the UK last year, as well as 10 foiled Islamist plots and four planned attacks by the extreme right, involved similar methods. Well, we've only got their word for it that they foiled 10 Islamist plots. 
lone actors on the extreme right are copycatting some of the methodology that has been used by Islamist jihadists around the world, he said, citing the attack using a van to ram people near Finsbury Park Mosque, for example. We're asking the public to give us a small piece of information and we will join it together, he said. Asked about incidents where police received information but failed to prevent attacks following warnings over the Manchester, London Bridge and Parsons Green attackers, he said forces were taking responsibility for improvements. Over the course of the last five years, 23 plots have been disrupted, all of which saved lives, Mr Bassu added. We are good at this, but we can always be better. Well, isn't it interesting that no matter how many times and how much they step up security and surveillance after each attack, it's never enough. One of the common themes of attacks is that either the security that's usually present is removed or not working or just not quite enough. This allows the attack to happen and also provides the justification for calls for security, surveillance and legislation to increase after the attack en route to beyond 1984, in fact. Does this mean every attack was coldly pre-planned by the state towards this end? No, but some of them are. That's the point in dispassionately and objectively looking at the evidence and information from mainstream and alternative sources is the key to deciding whether or not an event was manipulated into place by the state, rather than getting caught up in the drama, which is hyped up by 24-hour news channels and rolling news like on Sky News. People like Kay Burley, disgrace of a journalist on Sky News, but other channels as well are responsible for this building up of emotion to cloud dispassionate, objective investigation, drawing people into the story and the drama. We live in what's become known as a post-fact society. Facts don't matter anymore. It's all about drama and emotion. This is why the alternative media, the genuine part of it, takes much longer than the mainstream media to come to a conclusion about the true nature of events, whereas the mainstream media takes the official version from authority and the intelligence agencies very same intelligence agencies responsible in many cases for the attacks or takes a government statement and repeats it as the official true version. It's like that quote from Mark Twain, a lie can get halfway around the world while the truth is putting on its shoes. That's the difference between the mainstream media and real journalism and investigation and on top of that you've got Twitter which is full of uninformed clueless people buying into the hype and showing everybody else they're just like them with virtue signaling, showing everybody how pure and emotional you are and it's also full of those who are genuinely emotional. It's an echo chamber for reaction to the official version of events. I'm sick of it myself, I can't stand it on social media when an event happens. Facebook included, but it's worse on Twitter. It's almost like people feel they have to show solidarity to the victims, those recovering who are left alive, and families and loved ones of those who are not alive, who are, in many cases, almost certainly never going to see the tweet anyway. Definitely not going to see it on Facebook, almost certainly. But it's like people feel they have to show their support and emotion, just so people know they feel it, just in case people might think they don't. I'll decide if, whether or not, I show support and emotion, because I want to. I'll decide if I change my profile picture to the same profile picture everyone else has got in this hive mind mentality. Do we really think the monster Facebook, an executive of which is a previous director of DARPA, one of the most sinister organisations on the planet, the technological development arm of the Pentagon, is creating profile pictures, or ribbons, I think they call it, so people can show support? No, they don't give a shit. Too busy gathering and selling on people's data and advancing the transhumanism agenda. They're doing it to create this hive mind mentality which will then more easily accept changes in society to advance the agenda towards the 1984 world and the continued invasions of countries abroad. And that hive mind mentality then turns on anybody questioning the official version. Well, bring it on. I'll decide if I show support and emotion and I'll decide what I say, not digital peer pressure.
the article goes on. The call to action came after 36 victims were killed in the Westminster, Manchester, London Bridge and Finsbury Park terror attacks over four months of bloodshed in the UK. A review by David Addison QC, the former independent reviewer of terrorism legislation, found that security services missed opportunities to intercept the bombing at Manchester Arena and London Bridge attack and had the culprits on their radar. That's another common theme. Why does it keep happening? Police and MI5 vowed to learn lessons from the atrocities ahead of a revamped counter-terrorism strategy being announced by the government this year. How many times have they changed their strategy or said they'll change their strategy and attacks still happen. Officials have warned of the pace of attack plots increasing as the speed of radicalization continues to fall partly thanks to the spread of online propaganda from ISIS and other groups. Some of the material has contained detailed advice on how to launch massacres quickly with readily available tools with little prior planning and evade detection by authorities. The threat from both Islamists and the extreme right has been increasing as analysts document both groups feeding off each other in a process known as reciprocal radicalization. Arrests for terror offences are currently at a record level with 412 made in 2017 and the number of white suspects rocketing by 61%. The UK has been leading global efforts to make Facebook, YouTube, Twitter and other internet firms prevent material being uploaded and shared using its counter-terrorism internet referral unit. This is designed to end, as I said earlier, with anything that challenges and exposes the system. Ben Wallace, the security minister, said the threat Britain faced requires a response from all areas of society. I commend the public for their diligence in helping the police take in action can help save lives, he added. The public should remain alert but not alarmed, and I urge anyone who is worried about suspicious behaviour and activity to follow this advice and report their concerns to the police. We terrify you, and then we use that to take your freedoms away. That's what it's about. That's it in one sentence. This is in the Daily Mail. Another story relating to the Hunger Games Society we're seeing unfold all around us. Death of early retirement. By 2035, almost no one will give up work before they turn 65, pensions experts warn. Early retirement is becoming a fantasy for millions of workers, experts warn. Higher life expectancy and the demise of final salary pensions and a rising state pension age mean the number of people retiring before 65 has fallen by a quarter in just seven years. Pensions experts are predicting the death of early retirement as all but a lucky few work into their 70s. In a bleak assessment, savings giant Aviva said that by 2035 almost no one will give up work before the age of 65. Tom Selby, senior analyst at investments firm AJ Bell, said last night, This will be a brutal reality check. The idea of stopping work early is fast becoming a fantasy. The warnings came as a senior official at the Department for Work and Pensions said hundreds of thousands of over 50s may need to return to work because they will not have enough to live off in retirement. Employment Minister Alok Sharma revealed that government wants employees to be offered midlife MOTs to tell them how long they have to stay in work to have a comfortable retirement. MPs were told of plans for a national retraining scheme to ensure older workers adapt their skills. Office for National Statistics figures yesterday, this was Wednesday the 21st, showed the number of under 65s in retirement has fallen by 433,000 in the past seven years, from a peak of nearly 1.6 million in 2011 to under 1.2 million today. The report also showed a record 10.1 million over 50s are in work, including 1.2 million who are over 65. There were fewer than 700,000 over 65s in work 10 years ago and just 434,000. In 1998. Former Pensions Minister Sir Steve Webb blamed the demise of final salary pension schemes that offered workers a decent income in retirement. He said final salary pensions were very often the means that someone could take income enough to live on at 55, but fewer and fewer people are now reaching that age with such a pension. The article goes on. 
It is also thought some parents are unable to retire because they are still supporting their families, particularly children who need the help of the bank and mum and dad to get on the housing ladder. The state pension age for women is rising to match men at 65 and will increase to 66 for everyone by 2020 before rising further. Government actuaries believe it will reach 70 in the 2050s and 71 in the 2060s. Alistair McQueen, head of savings and retirement at Aviva, said that by 2035 there may be almost no one giving up work before the age of 65. That would mean nearly everyone born after 1970 will work beyond their 65th birthday. Duncan Gilchrist, Deputy Director of Fuller Working Lives at the DWP, said there was a need to raise the financial awareness of people in middle age. He said the government wanted to work at getting people fit enough to work for longer and to allow people to work more flexibly as they get older. The National Retraining Scheme would be a mechanism to try to make sure that of our skills base, the people who don't have current relevant skills are able to go to sectors where they can learn current relevant skills, he added. Mr Sharma said the DWP will bring out more details on proposed midlife MOTs later in the year. This, of course, is another expression in the Hunger Games society with the elite in absolute luxury, even more than they are now, and everyone else only just getting by and working till they die. The year 2035 is interesting. I've talked before about how the year 2030 keeps coming up all over the place, and now this article says that by 2035, most people will not stop working before 65. So it's interesting that it's 2035. Okay, we're going to move on to another story now. Passports. This is the, one of the big stories this week. This is in the Daily Mail. Made in France. Today, the Mail has a question for Britain's ruling class. Why do you hate our country, its history, culture, and the people's sense of identity? I'll answer that question after I finish reading the article. The Mail today has some questions to ask those members of our ruling class who took the ludicrous decision to hand the contract for the manufacture of the new British passport to a Franco-Dutch company instead of to the Gateshead firm Deliru. 1. Do you hate your country, its history, culture and people's sense of identity? 2. Do you hold in contempt the workers at the Deliru plant in Tyneside who stand to lose their jobs in a region with the highest unemployment rate in the country and where 6 in 10 people voted leave? 3. Do you believe that every EU dictat should be gold-plated by the drones and Whitehouse bureaucracy while countries like France and the US produce their own passports on the grounds of security? 4. Indeed, do you prefer dealing with the unelected European Commission rather than with British voters who every five years have the chance to kick their politicians out? 5. And finally, do you loathe Brexit and all those 17.4 million people who voted for it in the greatest democratic exercise in this country's history? How else but answering a firm yes to all these questions explains a decision that is as perverse and imbecilic as any to have emerged from Whitehall in living memory, and one which, to judge by the deluge of phone calls and letters received by this newspaper, the public regard with incredulity. Yet this spectacular end goal was completely avoidable. Indeed, only three months ago, the announcement of the restoration of the Blue Passport was a PR triumph. While Remainers predictably sneered, ministers held the opportunity Brexit offers to restore our national identity and forge a new path for ourselves in the world. They gave the appearance, at least, of recognising the unique and emblematic importance of that Blue Passport, which stood for British liberal values around the world. Have they now forgotten the place it holds in the hearts of Britons? Vandalised and homogenised by reams of success in Brussels instructions, the passport represented for a great many the endless leeching of powers to a remote superstate. As the EU pillaged our sovereignty, it also decimated the symbols of our sovereignty. Weights and measures went the same way as the passport, and if our jury files like Tony Blair and the CBI had got their way, our currency would have suffered the same fate. That's one of the things I'm actually surprised about, is that the UK didn't adopt the euro. I would have thought that would have happened. I'm glad it didn't, but I would have thought it would have happened. But fortunately, we stayed with the pen. The article goes on. 
So changing the passport back from burgundy to navy blue, the colour it had been from 1921 until 1988, was a highly symbolic reversal. But even putting politics to one side for a moment, the British bid had great merit. Delarue, a company which has been operating since just after the Battle of Waterloo, had never missed a single delivery in the decade of the current contract, and also makes the new £5 and £10 notes proof of its solid security credentials. Delarue argues rightly that cost should not be the only factor when producing vital security documents that cannot be forged, particularly in an age of terrorists and mass illegal migration. So how significant and risible that French-Dutch giant Jamalta was successfully hacked by GCHQ in 2011 but had no idea by whom until four years later and has posted four profit warnings in the past 18 months. Its imminent takeover by Thales, one quarter reigned by the French state, means we are poised to hand a major contract to a country currently trying every trick in the book to thwart a good Brexit deal for the City of London in a bid to drive bankers to a Paris riddled with high taxes and which significantly yesterday was paralysed by an all-out public sector strike. Over 10 years, the saving cost difference between the bids some £120 million is peanuts, especially at a time when the aid budget is £13 billion and growing so fast that officials struggle to find enough corrupt regimes to squander it on. So why, if ministers understood the symbolism of the passport in December, did they miss the catastrophe in the making and not head off? Had they allowed the decision to be made as it appears by an obscure committee of mandarins and not like the French take advantage of an EU national security opt-out to ensure the British company was chosen thereby safeguarding hundreds of jobs in the Delarue factory in the northeast. Perhaps Philip Hammond's political tenure which saw him propose scrapping in another grave misunderstanding of the public's attachment to national symbols, the 1P and 2P coins, has become contagious. Has it infected the Home Office when we now learn the decision was rubber-stamped as well? It's difficult to avoid the conclusion that Home Secretary Amber Rudd, like her brother Roland, the head of a wealthy city public relations firm, the leading force in the Remain camp, was simply following her Europhilic instincts. Perhaps this is the same deafness which has gripped the business department which limply stands by while the Mailrose predators threaten to break up the great British engineering firm GKN, which is vital strategic importance to our defences. This brings us back to the five essential questions for our seemingly lobotomised bureaucrats and the real roots of the passport's calamity. For 45 years they had been enthralled to the EU, not just embracing its every rule and regulation but guilt-edging them all. Meanwhile, other EU countries wisely adopted the rules they liked and ignored the others altogether. In the run-up to the referendum, these mandarins behaved entirely predictably, falling in behind Project Fear and disgracefully throwing political neutrality out of the window. Even after the vote, when the economic apocalypse they predicted failed to materialise, they clung on to their shameful forecasts and continued to doom-monger. So the inevitable conclusion the mail must draw is that Whitehall and much of our political class are in denial about the reasons why people voted for Brexit, the greatest of which was the loss of identity deeply felt by the majority of Brits. Another of which was migration, which is also contributing to the loss of culture and nationhood. And even now, as we approach one year before departure, which this newspaper wholeheartedly believes will eventually prove a great boon for Britain, they are yet to throw off the EU status shackles and begin thinking for themselves, so corrupted have they been by decades of kowtowing to the corrupt, sclerotic, undemocratic behemoth that is Brussels. Well, the mail has a message for them. Get over it. We're leaving. And at this crucial juncture in our island's history, symbols of our identity matter, and the passport is one of them. Fishing is another. Sold out by Ted Heath in 1973, Britain's fishermen have seen their livelihood slowly destroyed by the common fisheries policy. Anyone in government who thinks this totemic industry can be simply traded away is playing with fire. And as for our passports, they are just that. Ours and not some tatty bits of commercial paper to be produced by a firm subsidised by a country that wouldn't dream of allowing another nation to produce their passports. If our ruling class is one out of common sense or patriotism in its makeup, this decision must be reversed and urgently. Not about patriotism. That's not where the decisions are coming from. It's not about hating culture. It's about breaking down a sense of cultural nationhood. As if you're a global elite and desire a global dictatorship, 
You can't have people standing strong as a nation and a people to resist any form of being dictated to from elsewhere. You've got to break down that sense of culture and nationhood and also infuse the native population with people from different cultures, so diluting any resistance to rule from a central point. I say in a book I'm writing at the moment about the global elite and their agenda, who they are and how they introduce and advance their agenda and what the agenda is. But there's two ways to look at the migration crisis. One way is believing society changing problems like migration are happening because of incompetence and naivety on the part of government. People think migrants are being let into the country without those in power realising the effect it's having on society and the lives of people in this country, especially working class people. Another way is knowing that when Britain and America were bombing countries in the middle and near east of North Africa to smithereens, the people in power knew that that would mean the displacement of hundreds of thousands of native peoples, because it's obvious, who then had to flee to other countries, one of them Britain, for refuge. There's also a large amount of single men and opportunists among the number of migrants who are migrating for their own personal ends. Some of them are genuine, some of them are kids, some of them are family members, but there's also a large amount of single men and opportunists among the number of migrants. So if you want a world government dictatorship, which is the goal in the end, dictating to the unions and the unions will then dictate to the countries, which should be broken up into regions eventually. That's the plan. You have to first of all break down resistance to a dilution of sovereignty. The European Union and other unions are one method of achieving this, but so is migration. Instead of having the people of a country come together, standing strong as a nation and as a people of the country, you have multiculturalism, a melting pot of different cultures and nationalities, and as such, a lack of unity of resistance to sovereignty being removed. Migration was planned all along, it's not an accident. Another crucial point, I often hear people say, especially in response to migration, that people in government are all idiots and they don't know what they're doing, they don't know the effect it's having. This is certainly true for some of them, but those really in power in government and those really behind what's happening know exactly what they're doing. That's why they're doing it. This is the switch in perception people need to understand the world. Entirely different subject again now, microplastics, this is in the Guardian. World Health Organization launches health review after microplastics found in 90% of bottled water. The World Health Organization has announced a review into the potential risks of plastic in drinking water after a new analysis of some of the world's most popular bottled water brands found that more than 90% contain tiny pieces of plastic. A previous study also found high levels of microplastics in tap water. In the new study, Analysis of 259 bottles from 19 locations in 9 countries across 11 different brands found an average of 325 plastic particles for every litre of water being sold. In one bottle of Nestle Pure Life, concentrations were as high as 10,000 plastic pieces per litre of water. Of the 259 bottles tested, only 17 were free of plastics according to the study. Scientists based at the State University of New York in Fredonia were commissioned by journalism project Orb Media to analyse the bottled water. The scientists wrote they had found roughly twice as many plastic particles within bottled water compared with their previous study of tap water, reported by The Guardian. According to the new study, the most common type of plastic fragment found was polypropylene, the same type of plastic used to make bottle caps. The bottles analysed were bought in the US, China, Brazil, India, Indonesia, Mexico, Lebanon, Kenya and Thailand. But we should not, I would strongly suggest, think that means that it's not the same in Britain. The article goes on. Scientists use narrow red dye to fluoresce particles in the water. The dye tends to stick to the surface of plastics, but not most natural materials. The study has not been published in a journal and has not been through scientific peer review. Dr. Andrew Mays, a University of East Anglia scientist who developed the Nile red technique, told Orb Media he was satisfied that it has been applied carefully and appropriately in a way that I would have done it in my lab. 
the brands or media said it attested were Aqua, Danone, Aquafina and Pepsi, Bisleri from Bisleri International, Dasani from Coca-Cola, Pura from PepsiCo, Evian from Danone, Jevo Steiner from Jevo Steiner Brunin, Minalba from Grupo Edson Kiros, Nestle Pure Life from Nestle, San Pellegrino Nestle, and Wahaha from Hangzhou Wahaha Group. A World Health Organization spokesman told The Guardian that although there was not yet any evidence on impacts on human health, it was aware it was an emerging area of concern. The spokesman said the World Health Organization would review the very scarce available evidence with the objective of identifying evidence gaps and establishing a research agenda to inform a more thorough risk assessment. A second unrelated analysis, also just released, was commissioned by campaign group Story of Stuff and examined 19 consumer bottled water brands in the US. It also found plastic microfibers were widespread. The brand boxed water contained an average of 58.6 plastic fibers per litre. Ozarka and Ice Mountain, both owned by Nestle, had concentrations of 15 and 11 pieces per litre, respectively. VG Water had 12 plastic fibres per litre. Abigail Barrows, who carried out the research for Story of Stuff in her laboratory in Maine, said there were several possible routes for the plastics to be entering the bottles. Plastic microfibres are easily airborne. Clearly that's occurring not just outside but inside factories. It could come in from fans or the clothing being worn, she said. Steve Wilson, campaign coordinator at Story of Stuff, said finding plastic contamination in bottled water was problematic because people are paying a premium for these products. Jacqueline Savitz of campaign group Oceana said, We know plastics are building up in marine animals and this means we too are being exposed. Some of us every day. Between the microplastics in water, the toxic chemicals in plastics and the end of life exposures to marine animals, it's a triple whammy. Nestle criticised the methodology of the Orb Media study, claiming in a statement to CBC that the technique using Nile Red Dye could generate false positives. Coca-Cola told the BBC it had strict filtration methods but acknowledged the ubiquity of plastics in the environment and that plastic fibres may be found at minute levels even in highly treated products. A Joel Steiner spokesperson said the company, too, could not wall out plastics getting into bottled water from airborne sources or from packing processes. The spokesperson said concentrations of plastics in water from their own analyses were lower than those allowed in pharmaceutical products. Danone claimed the Orb Media study used a methodology that was unclear. The American Beverage Association said it stood by the safety of its bottled water, adding that the science around microplastics was only just emerging. The Guardian contacted Nestle and Boxed Water for comment on the story of stuff study but had not received a response at the time of publication. Well, I've talked about microplastics before and how they're all part of the leech depopulation agenda. They also have an impact on fertility, as I've talked about before. Also, we live in a toxic world and increasingly a plastic world. And it's all about changing the human form genetically, mutating human genetics and depopulation. In the end, with transhumanism and transgender, the end of gender, sexuality, procreation, the end of the human mind and the end of human. This is the true scale of what we are facing as a human race. Someone said to me once, in fact, they've said a few times, we live in a free country because I can walk up and down my street with a sign criticizing the government if I wanted to. Well, first of all, maybe up and down your street, but people have filmed videos on YouTube where they've been in a place where there's a large number of people saying like a city center where they've held up a sign without any political message at all. And they've been questioned by police asking them what they're doing. And also, the human situation takes on an entirely different perspective 
when you realise that the elite don't have a global agenda to stop people holding up a sign. They have an agenda for the end of the human mind, replacing it with artificial intelligence, and the end of human. That's the difference between those who know the agenda and those who don't know it. As I said just now, once you know the agenda, the world looks very different. Those who do know the nightmare that's coming unless we get informed and come together to resist it because there's an enormous number of us. There's only a tiny number of them. It's just a choice that we don't have long to make it. Okay, that's it for this week. I look forward as ever to doing pay-per-view next week and talk then. Bye.